Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. Well, hello, Canada Land listeners. You might be wondering, where's Jesse? I don't know this high-pitched nasally whine. Well, as I can only assume you're all relieved to have a break from him, you're welcome. He'll still be here today, but this time, there's a bit of a twist. My name is Jonathan Torrens, and today, I'll be hosting The Interrogation of Jesse Brown. Or maybe it's more like an intervention. For longtime listeners, you might remember that Jesse and I have a bit of a history. 100% grade A Canadian beef that goes back millennia, or at least to the mid-90s, which is the first instance I can recall of Jesse trolling me on the teen talk show I hosted, Jonovision. This afternoon, Jonovision on CBC. Maybe it's more like a what's your beef for you Street Sense kids out there. Anyway, he was there to talk about his underground student newspaper called Punch. But over time, he revealed his true intention to enlist fellow guest Sarah Pauly's help to derail the whole show. Despite Jesse's constant need to be that guy, be the bully on the cyber playground, three years ago, I agreed to come on this show and be trolled in front of all of you. This time, I agreed to come back on one condition. I be the one to interview him. This is my chance to ask all the questions I've been dying to have answered. Okay, two questions, really. What is wrong with him, and why is he so angry all the time? So today I'll be putting the screws to the enigma that is Jesse Brown to find out what makes him tick, and what makes him ticked. Is the Jesse Brown we all think we know the same guy when the mic is off? Let's find out together. Hey. Hey. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Which one of us is Balky and which one is Larry? I'll be, uh, what was the actor's name? I'll be Bronson Pinchot from True Romance. I'll be that Bronson Pinchot. Bronson Pinchot. Oh, I like him. Jesse Brown joins us now in the house that he built. I'm trying to gauge your tone. Is it argumentative? Is it, Are you nervous? I'm like, uh... Scanning the uh, the lay of the land here. I don't know what I'm walking into. Dozens of Canadians insisted that we revisit this conversation in a part two. And I thought it would be fun to turn the tables and have a chance to get to know Jesse Brown a little bit. So when this possibility came up, how did you feel about it, first of all? Like, my hesitation is just I don't know that anybody cares. Maybe you're asking if I, like, am I nervous about it? I don't know. No. I think... Asking the questions is kind of a default for me just in life. I ask it to get out of social situations. I ask questions uh, to deflect from myself. Um, so I guess I, I'm trying to find common ground. Do you, too, experience cringiness at the thought of people listening to you blather on? I think it would be disingenuous. For, like I, I, I subject many people to my blather in, in you know professional and personal situations. So I think... I'm just too aware of the collective eye roll of many who know me listening. If I were to say, yes, I, I can't stand to make somebody listen to me talk for a very long period of time. And yet, when Amy Dempsey wrote an article about me and whether I was okay during the pandemic because I seemed unreasonably chipper, 
you were the one counterpoint who represented the eye rollers of Canada who roll their eyes at me. Why is it you think people would roll their eyes at you? I am a podcast listener, right? And I think of the podcast listening experience for everything else we try to do, like this is a very important show about current affairs, or this is the only show that's... It's just people deciding who they want to spend time with when you listen to a podcast. You're just deciding which of the hosts of all the different podcasts you want to hang out with. And as a listener myself, I know that you reach a saturation point where it's like, I've hung out with Mark Maron enough, you know? Like, it's been great, but I know what he's going to say. I've heard it all. Let me find somebody else to hang out with. And I wonder about my best before date. Well, the funny thing is, I cited a Ricky Gervais anecdote when I was speaking with Sarah and Jonathan, your team before this, about the bulletin board in the town. And Jonathan said, yeah, you you mentioned that last time. And I encounter this too. I I have a podcast, we're approaching 300 hours, and I've started calculating the number of anecdotes I preface with, you and I have talked about this before. Like, at what point do you say that's enough of me? <laughs> like, do you want a date or a number of episodes? <laughs> what are we What are we talking about? Well, no, it sounds like this is something that's reverberating around in, in your head yeah. as well. Even as I was saying that thing about listening to Marin and deciding who to hang out with, I'm like, have I said that on the podcast before? This is actually what you asked me about when you tried to turn the tables on me in our last conversation was just like, I don't know if you were as ungenerous as to call it a shtick, but I think you were questioning me about my ornery disposition and whether or not I'll run out of orneriness and not be able to do anything else. I don't know if it's orneriness, but I do feel like... So we've been trying to like make it less me, and on the Monday show, what's interesting about it for me is all the different people and all the different stories that we're now featuring. But yeah. So that's the option, Jesse? Have more people who are less ornery rather than you just simply be less ornery? No, I'm looking for people who are ornery in different ways. Like my favorite people are very ornery and it's a bad habit for a person in a hiring position at a company that they like mostly own to specialize in hiring angry people and critical, cynical people. But that seems to be my thing. Um, And I'm just sort of interested in like, you know, different flavors of, of ornery. I have so many questions. Mostly it has to do with And I can't remember if I mentioned this last time I was on. I was thinking of Tom Green, who, when he was coming up, would have human feces on a microphone doing streeters. And then he would have a dead raccoon in a suitcase. And every time he did something, he had to ratchet up the audaciousness. And I know for a fact that put kind of a lot of internal pressure on him. And I wonder if the anger balls of the world feel that same kind of pressure to be even angrier. <laughs> what what can I possibly have to be angry about? I mean, things have gone like pretty okay for me. I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like you only experience me, like I don't know how much you listen to the show. So I, like, I feel like our chief intimacy, you and I are my mocking, withering tweets that just destroy you when you least expect it, when you're saying earnest, lovely things. But, you know, I guess all journalism is about like a certain amount of this is wrong and here's what it's all about. We found something that's wrong. That should be informed by a certain amount of anger, but the anger isn't really what sells it. So it's not like we sit around like, how can we get it angrier? There's like an element in criticism of like, if I'm going to take issue with something, I you know, I got to mean it. Is that what gives you oxygen? There's different things. Like if I actually am pissed off about something, 
I'll have a lot to say about it. And it's an interesting challenge because the things that I get pissed off at are pretty esoteric and niche. So, you know, speaking to kind of a general audience of smart people who might not give a damn about the thing I'm angry about, it's kind of like, I like when I'm like, how can I convey my irritation in a way that will get other people angry about this? That can give me some juice, yeah. But there's nothing like a good story. What makes you angry? Like, what are the things that are niche? Oh, man. I mean, I think that the project of the show and the company in a way is to try to take this place that we're living in seriously and not just kind of consider ourselves like bystanders to news and history and the real world that we just like think of ourselves, oh, we're in the nice place off to the side of the big bad place. So, you know, the kind of operating principle is like, look at your own home and regard it for real. And it's not something that I used to do before Canada Land. It's not like I spent, you know, the first 30 years of my life really building up any kind of like fixation, obsession, or even deep knowledge of Canada. But with the project of Canada Land, there's no shortage of things that get you pretty irritated. You know, I think that the thing that's frustrating is we live in such a low engagement society, whether it's like the voting levels in Ontario or just trying to get people to take themselves seriously and our policies, each other, that is frustrating, that's irritating, and how much powerful people get away with just out of apathy. If you regard it, if you look at it right at it, it's endlessly frustrating. So that's your beef with me. You think I don't take things seriously enough. I'm too surface. <laughs> I'm too uh, upbeat and happy. I kind of gloss over the deep stuff. <laughs> I thought we were talking about me. No, um, I don't think that's my beef with you. First of all, how often do you introduce yourself as Jesse Brown, former John Vision guest? Just on average in the run of a week. Yeah, I, you know, just never, it never comes up. It's <laughs> never come up. You know, no one remembers. Right. It meant nothing. For me either. Um, but when you were on the John Vision, I feel like, were you 18 years old? Yeah. You were talking about the student newspaper Punch of which you were the editor, mm -hmm. you uh, proudly posted a quote from a principal that called Punch obscene and destructive. Mm -hmm. So the seeds were there early on for this to be your path in life. Like most teenagers aren't as engaged or as worked up. Why were you? It's a good question. I had a uh, pretty privileged, you know, upbringing. Nothing really to be angry about in any kind of like concrete way that a lot of people could say like, you know, they had to, to face adversity in various ways. I think there's something that happens, not to every adolescent, but it kind of should happen where the world is sort of revealed to you and you realize that it's much more stupid and mean than you were educated to believe growing up. And this is where a lot of angry music and bad haircuts come from. And a lot of that, mm. I think, with age, it's a good idea to find context and to kind of like forgive the world some of its hypocrisies and, and to understand the compromises that created the way things are. But there's a piece of that that's worth hanging on to that I think some people let slide because there's an idealism to it that like it shouldn't be this stupid and there shouldn't be such a lie about it being things making more sense and working better than, than they actually do. And that's worth holding on to. That's the best part of teenagers. As uh, hair metal gives way to pop, gives way to grunge, 
Um, so too has the media shifted since those punch days, but your tone hasn't really. <laughs> uh, last time I was on, I, I said, I was worried that you've cynicked yourself into a corner and, and what is the long play? Is it hard to remain cynical? Where do you find the stamina for that? It's so, it, it's so easy. It's, uh, it's terribly easy. Look, we're both parents and I think you can't be cynical and be a parent. But if anything, that just like actually makes you more invested in, I don't know, wanting things to be better. Well, I would argue as a parent, one thing that changed in my life is I want things to be simpler. I want to be around more. I get a lot of invitations to be a guest on people's podcasts, for example. I feel like time is my wealth. And the more of it I have, the better I feel. So I can only imagine if you're angry in your life and work, that's hard, isn't it? I just want to back up a bit. Are you suggesting that you're hard to book on podcasts, that you're like a get? Why? are No, I'm not. <laughs> but everyone who's like, you know what? My uh, grampy and I started a podcast in the barn, and we thought it would be real fun to have you on. I'm those like, uh, fun first guest. I get a lot of those asks. Right, right. We've never actually done one, but we'd love to have you. Like, do your kids <laughs> have to call you Jesse Brown? Um, No. Let me answer your actual question. What was your actual question? Is it hard to be angry? Is, what was the, yeah, that, that's sort of the headline. The, is, it, is it hard to sustain cynicism? You've been cynical for decades. Isn't that exhausting? Yes, yes, it is. But I know no other way. I think that anger and frustration, and I, I don't mean to say that it's simply about like the hypocrisies of the world. Like, you know, like anger is a very personal thing. And I think that some stuff gets implanted in you very early and... Yeah, there's parts of it where you kind of have to maybe put away childish things and try to be at peace. But then there's also, I don't know, like, what's your juice? What's your fuel? Like, you keep returning to this idea of cynicism. But to try to keep this operation of this company going every day, it's like I once heard a film producer talk about, like, what is producing. And it's like everything wants to collapse always. Hmm. And the natural state of any endeavor is for it to fall apart and just not function. And we function and we put these things out on time and some of them are really, really good. And every day is like, all right, let's get behind that boulder and just like it might like roll downhill and roll over my feet today. Or I might get it like another inch closer to wherever it is we're going. And that's a whole interesting thing to think about, too, because I don't really think about getting it to the top. I don't really think about selling the company or retiring. It's this thing of like, I guess I'm just going to do this forever. So I don't know how you could be cynical and, and wake up and do that every day. I remember a friend of mine, Roger Fredericks, who's a TV writer, saying making a film is like 50 people trying to draw a straight line with a giant pencil. And I've never forgotten that. I love that image so much. Yeah, that's good. Do you think the Jesse Brown that people perceive is close to who you really are? Like, I remember Wayne Gretzky saying, there's Wayne Gretzky, and that's the Enterprise. And then at home, there's Wayne. And it's a very different thing. And that's how he compartmentalizes those two things. Do you think Jesse Brown, in quotes, is a good representation of you? Uh, yeah, like, to an extent. You don't get everything, and you don't want everything. And it's important for me and for people in my life that it's not everything. So you kind of have to decide what to hold back. But... I live in fear of constructing something that's false and then having to maintain it. 
it's not about any kind of integrity. It's just about like, that seems like a lot of work. When we, th- when we think about certain broadcasters who really put up a front, like a version of themselves that nobody really experiences in real life, that must be exhausting, you know? I've also, like, it's less so these days because I think that the show is, is less about me than it ever was. But what was exciting about podcasting to me in the early days was that there's so many parts of conversation or of like what you're thinking or just like being a little bit mean or the little parts where everybody's like rustling in their seat before the interview gets going all the real life that got kind of smoothed away from like a a slick CBC interview back when I was hosting at CBC and when podcasting was new part of the excitement of it for me was like you know I've given up my dreams of being an artist you know but like I am a communicator and I do express myself I wonder if a podcast can be a medium to express like a lot of myself And so there were like interviews with people from my personal life and old friends. And, you know, like the early episodes had like people I dated and enemies and things. So I just was wondering, like, could the interview format sustain all that stuff? Overall, a lot of me has gotten onto this RSS feed. People do come after you hard, though. That is no secret. My father-in-law always says there are givers and takers. Givers sleep better, but takers eat better. In an interview with uh, Sarah Berman on this show last year, you alluded to deep-seated personality flaws that have cost you friends, sleep, and well-being. But you also conceded that you might be a lot poorer if you were a better person, in quotes. (laughs) What did you mean by that? Uh, I know which of my colleagues fed you that question, too, uh, just by the content of it. Um, What did I mean by that? Wow. Uh... What did I, I, I don't remember the context. Like it's, it's hard for me to sort through my, my deep seated personality flaws and recall which one I was referring to. <laughs> and if I was a better person, I probably would be less wealthy. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that would seem like a funny thing to say at the time, but like, um, I don't know to what extent is, does being like a less good person, uh, well, I guess I I think I'll that, say in your defense that that does speak to someone who has a self-awareness is that maybe something you don't show enough. That you get it. Yeah. You know, I don't know why I came on this show. Who's even listening to this? Okay, so it is very self-indulgent, but I guess that this whole episode is, and I I, I agreed to this. I'm a part of this, so I'll, I'll go with you here. I think that one thing that I've learned just from, like, covering people is that denial is a really powerful thing and people's blind spots like this idea of like a search for truth and you know the interview is a kind of a cross-examination where you try to get at it there is no one who is not oblivious to some aspect of themselves which is like totally apparent to everybody else so i try to be self-aware without being like annoyingly self-obsessed but i'm sure that there's like some very obvious stuff that uh that i, I just don't see I didn't really hear anything you said after everyone has a blind spot about which they are blissfully unaware and everyone else knows it. I'm trying to think of what mine is. I've been accused of having a crippling desire to be liked. Like that's the, uh, that's the other side of this coin, the burden of kindness, (laughs) how I am keenly Uh, aware that people are hoping to have a negative interaction with me because they can't wait to tell everyone what a jerk I was at Sobeys. That's not your blind spot at all. That's immediately apparent. Do you know what mine is? Yeah, you're angry. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm really angry. There must be there must be kind of a freedom in that though, isn't there? If well, everyone thinks I'm angry anyway, I might as well just be angry. Yes. 
Yes, I find it very liberating not to have to hide. You know, I'm sure that I'm crippled from having to hide other things, but it does feel like it's better for me as a media critic, or you know, and as an interviewer, if I don't care about what people think of me. You know, it was always like a latent part of my personality that my friends saw that I could be kind of nasty or cutting. But, um, you know, there's truth to it. So it was definitely freeing when I could just say what I felt. You know, it was fun. It was fun. But in, in that quote, when you say you've lost friends and sleep, is that true? Does that weigh on you? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There have been occasions where I have felt like if I'm worth anything as a critic or as somebody's trying to tell the truth, sometimes it's like I have like I can't just criticize people I don't know or don't like. Sometimes I felt like it's necessary here for me to say something critical about somebody who I am friends with or work with or something like that. And that has led to conflict and hurt feelings and broken relationships. And I've definitely in cases felt like did I talk myself into th that this was noble or honest or was it a performance of honesty and uncompromising truth and I sacrificed a friendship to perform that or did it need to be done? And some of those questions remain open for me. When the pandemic started, uh, you published isolation interviews on this show. In one of them, you mentioned you have a hard time with empathy. Is there a question there? Well, I was, there's more of an ellipsis there. I was trying to not do a sort of CBC radio. Can you talk about that or walk me through that? Or what, what does that feel like? I guess I was just going to lay it on the table and see if you picked up the verbal baton in any way that suited you. I'll let your ellipsis hang. Um, I think that I have like decent EQ. I think I'm literate and aware of people's emotions and I, I hope to be like an ethical, like I care about how people feel. I try to anyhow, but I don't think I feel what people feel. I think that maybe I've made an asset in this job out of like, I'm willing to let things be really uncomfortable in a way that like it, it, it feels so awkward or people feel so bad for somebody else when they're in a tough spot that, um, you know, you, you can't ask certain questions or have certain conversations. So anyhow, a lot of like what I've tried to do professionally is purpose the things that are maybe not great about my personality towards a positive outcome or towards a service that I could provide. <laughs> but if you're asking me, like, do you not feel empathy? Like the nerves aren't dead. And certainly, you know, family and parenthood has, you know, that brings things right to the surface. But I question like, you know, that's that word has become so popular these days to be empathetic. But like, Let's be moral. How about that? Let's actually make decisions that take people's feelings into consideration because there's no prize for feeling bad on behalf of somebody else, you know, or like in reflection of somebody else. Like that, like it doesn't really accomplish anything that you feel someone else's pain or joy or, or, or whatever they feel. It's become its own kind of Has parenthood kind of shaken you out of that? Out of my uh, like lack of empathy or out of my uh, or into a greater understanding of EQ? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, their needs are immediate and unrelenting. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things you like to do with your kids? Well, I mean, here is... This is where it's going to get uncomfortable. It's not going to... I mean, this is... It's not uncomfortable for me so much as, like, that's what I leave off the table. You know, they just don't have a choice if I'm going to involve them in my public whatever. So, I don't know. The deal I've made with my partner and my kind of implicit deal with them is, like... 
this is going to be your choice, whether you, whether you want to be associated with any of this or not, or your life to be reflected. Like, cause as soon as you say anything about them, they exist in people's minds. And then that becomes something that they might later have to deal with is the way in which, I mean, it's something that I have to deal with and that like anybody who listens to me has an understanding of me and then they meet me and are terribly disappointed and we have to deal with that. But I chose that and they, they you know, they didn't. I live in the country. My life is very quiet by design, but I do like to visit the noise on occasion. How much of the noise appeals to you? Oh my God. Like, are you, do you go to the, the Giller Awards and the stuff and the dinners and you have to show up at a thing? Do you like all that? Man, I go to things like journalism event galas pretty much anytime I'm invited. And I love walking into the room and just feeling like, I'm sure I'm imagining it, you know, 99 out of 100 of the people have no idea who I am, but I'm like, oh, there's so much hate and there's so much enmity towards me. And I've written about this one and that one. Like, and then people are lovely and say nice things and are like, oh, it's great to see Canada Land doing so well. I got to tell you a story about the last one I went to. Please do. All right. This was like the Canadian Journalism Fund gala and it was like half journalists and it was half the money people who give money to the, this fund and they, you know, what do they do? They give money to, you know, some foreign correspondent who's been driven out of their home country in South America and aren't they brave? And they are. And, and, and so RBC or somebody gives them some money and then there's internships for kids and all the wonderful people who are brave journalists get, you know, grants and get little videos about their wonderful work. And Matt Galloway's hosting and he gives an award to David Suzuki. And David Suzuki is introduced by Margaret Atwood. And Margaret Atwood says nice things about Suzuki. And then Ed Bertinsky, it's all of the good, fine people of Canada just congratulating each other on how wonderful and good they are and giving each other awards. And I'm invited. I don't know why I'm invited. I mean, maybe to spice things up. But then once you've got me there, you've got a problem, which is like, where do you seat me? You know, like that could be an issue if you put me at the wrong table and who can even keep track of the various journalists and editors who have taken umbrage with me and, and are reporting over the years. So where do they seat me, Jono? They sat me at the student journalist table. Amazing. Which like, that's great. They're like, it's a great way to meet people who uh, might be looking for jobs and have great stories to pitch. But then we get to the part of the evening where Matt Galloway turns to the audience and says, you know, all of you wonderful people, journalists, brave and, and, and funders of brave journalists. Thank you. But, but there's still there's still one more thing to do. There's something here for one of you lucky people. Look under your chair. One of you will find an envelope with a special gift. It's tickets, airplane tickets to anywhere Porter flies. And I look underneath my chair while everyone else is. And God damn it. I got the envelope. No. And it only occurred to me later that they put it at the student journalism table so a student journalist would get it. And Galloway says, who got it? Who got it? Who got it? Somebody must have got it. Anybody find the envelope? The envelope remains in an undisclosed location. And I'm just like, oh, shit. And the students see the envelope in my hand and the students start yelling to Matt Galloway, over here, Jesse won, Jesse won. And then like a spotlight is right in my face and the entire room turns towards me. And Matt Galloway, who is just unflappable and classy, goes, oh, there we are. Oh, Jesse Brown gets the envelope. There's a story in that somewhere. And there's just this, I'm just like, and I just, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm so sorry that I won the tickets. And everyone looks appalled. Uh, and it was, it was the greatest gift. It was the greatest thing I could have won. Better than the, the David Suzuki Where did you prize. go? 
I didn't go anywhere. You gave it to one of the kids. I had to give it away or else it would look bad. I'm not. Yeah, but also as a human being, that's the right thing to do in that moment. The right thing to do is to go on a trip and have fun. We've been locked up for two years. I still think about those tickets. When I was on the show last time, here, let's uh, revisit this. You mocked the song I wrote for Canada's 150 Celebrations. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a, a, a re-lyric version of Alanis's Thank You. How about finding a way to say Canada thank you? Thank you, Canada! For your prairies and mountains and tundra and sea. Thank you. But I also explained to you why it was the worst thing ever, and then you agreed. We got somewhere. I did. Yeah, we really did. It was all of the cliches that we roll our collective eyes at, for better or for worse. Your point is worse, and I totally see how it's worse, and I totally understand how that wasn't everyone's experience. I mean, this is the thing. When people talk about COVID and we're all in it together, someone who's in a bachelor condo at Bay and Bloor had a very different experience than I did. So mm-hmm. uh, it's the same as traveling internationally. When people say, what is Canada like? You can't describe what it's like. You can only describe what it's like for yourself. But you asked me what... Canadianity is, which is the sort of uh, word that uh, Jeremy Taggart and I use on our podcast. Taggart. It's the word that you made up, yeah. A word that we made up. So mm-hmm. w- you made up a word too, Canada land. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I uh, I think I just like the way it sounded. Like I, I like I've heard people talk about like when people talk about Chicago politics, like there's a wonderful sense of place in a lot of American storytelling and journalism, you know, fiction and nonfiction where like New York has a certain meaning in California. You can sing songs about these places and they have like this like deep resonance and we just can't do that. You can be like, yeah, that's Winnipeg hard. You know, like we just like, we just don't take ourselves seriously to an extent that that becomes possible. So anyhow, I've heard people talk about Chicagoland in this way that I always just found like felt really lurid and interesting and engaging to me. Like what is like it, and it just is suggestive of this deep sprawling corruption and you know, forget it. It's Chicago land. And you know, I think I probably heard a couple of people in internet speak be like, I'm from Canada land. I feel like there's a way to kind of like use that term and point it towards some kind of an indictment or some, give it some grit, give it, give it some tension. So does it have an eye roll baked into it? No, I'm trying to get away from the, like, I don't know if it succeeds or not, but the idea is to get away from an eye roll. Because I think, like, Canada land versus Canadianity, I guess. So your project is like, what does it mean to be Canadian-ish? Like, what, what is Canadianity? Let's try to figure that out. And I'm trying to suggest something like Canada land. Let's put it under a f- microscope uh, in a really hardcore, yeah, I don't know. So I don't know if it works, but that's the idea, man. Is it what you meant? The business, the enterprise, the word. No. And this is why so much more than I intended it to be or could have made it. My life is this weird thing of like first 15 years is just sort of like begging for a drink. It just felt like any opportunity to just do something, to write a funny piece or to, to report it, do a documentary And I was just like, had my cup out trying to get anything to drink. And then all of a sudden I was drinking from a fire hose and I I haven't stopped. And it's, it actually can be unpleasant to to drink from a fire hose. (laughs) My greatest dream when I started this, which I thought was really unrealistic was like, I wonder if this could be my job and not just my podcast. And then, you know, as a reach goal, you're supposed to have a reach goal when you're doing crowdfunding, like, you know, give people some idea of the grand global vision, just something to shoot for. And I said, all right, we'll become a podcast network if we reach 
$10,000 in crowdfunding, thinking like as if that'll ever happen. And then it did. And then I had to make it. And then I had to find people to make it with. And it's been like really difficult and bumpy, but we're doing it. And the things that my colleagues are making are things I could have never imagined or dreamed of and the stories that people are telling. So watching it actually become this thing that lives outside of me and independently of me and increasingly there are things that I listen to when they're published that I'm hearing for the first time is like the greatest, like it's just, I can't, I can't imagine being luckier than that. It's, it's amazing. But being equal to that and, you know, to back up to what we were saying earlier, to hold it up and not let it collapse uh, which just when I feel like it has a life of its own and exists without my interference, it seems like something happens where I'm like, oh, shit, and then I've got to scramble to keep it going. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I'm living. You know, I'm just, like just trying to build an institution, Jono. Here's my last question, and I'm going to ask you to um, refrain from joking it off or shrugging it off or using sarcasm. Do you think you could just request that? You could just ask for me to give you a genuine, sincere answer to a big question. Oh, okay. Since you asked, I'll... I'll yeah, I'm hosting the show. All right. Try it again. Are you happy? Mostly not. You know? <laughs> I mean, there's... Mostly not. Mostly not. I, I, I'm, 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 like, mostly not. But who the cares like is that the goal like that's a ridiculous there are moments of intense joy there's moments of pride there's moments of accomplishment i really like food there's pleasure you know i feel contented i feel fortunate and blessed. there's a lot of positive stuff that if i were in your weird you know eat pray love corner of public communication i could have various aphorisms and encouragements but who needs to hear that like it's it's not useful peace of mind would be nice but uh What's the value proposition of contentedness? You know, who does that help? Well, I guess the reason I asked the question is because I'm trying to offer the people a peek behind the curtain. Right. And so when they go off to dinner parties, they'll be able to say, you know what I heard? You know that, uh, you know that crankopotamus who's always uh, <laughs> angry all the time? Guess what? He's happy. Yeah. I, Who knew? I, I just think life is imperfect and there are joys of the craft. I'm working on a story and I wasn't sure if any of it was true. And then I got somebody on the phone who I'd been trying to get on the phone. And then without me giving them any of the details, they told the story that I heard from somebody else and all of it lined up. And I realized the story was true that I'd been like going over for months and, or weeks anyhow. And I felt really happy, you know? I'm like, yes, we're going to get to tell people something that no one's ever heard before. Like reporting is a drug like no other. When you are in a position of telling people a cool or interesting or important story that no one's ever heard before, that's lightning in a bottle. There's lots of pleasure and joy in, in my private life. But like, no, I walk around unsettled all the time, all the time. It's not right. Things aren't okay. And I'm not necessarily trying to correct that. Did you say I'm not necessarily trying to correct it? Yeah, I'm I'm not necessarily trying to feel otherwise. Huh. I got a meter saw this week, and my daughter got a new skateboard, and she asked if I could build a little ledge to set her skateboard on in her room, and I can with my new meter saw, and I built one and uh, set her skateboard on it. That's probably the happiest I've been this calendar year. Well, howdy-doody. I keep the bar very low, Jesse Brown. That way I am never disappointed. You're the gratitude from Big Mouth, and I'm the shame wizard, and both have their exactly. place. Exactly. Mm -hmm. 
in all seriousness, I have a theory as to why I'm very happy. It's because I lost a parent at a young age. And much has been written about when the worst possible thing happens to you as a child, everything else seems insignificant by comparison. So it's not from nowhere that I am just in a state of bliss all the time. It's because I think I have a really good thing to compare it to. I read that about you in that newspaper profile, and it endeared you to me as like, I now understand why he says those horrible, painful, positive things all the time. (laughs) And he's like kind of figured out a conception of the world that is just generous and works for the world and for him. And that's his role. He's an entertainer. Like I got, I, I, I provide a different service than you, man. So in this Batman Joker kind of duality thing we're doing here, I have nothing in my childhood to, to complain about. And yet, uh, look at me and look at you. Right. Do you know that I enjoy you thoroughly when you pop up on my radar? Like it's nothing <laughs> but joy. When I see your tweets about like rainbows, they're great. And, and be like one. It's, it's a certain kind of, painful joy and then thinking about what to say in return is like i'm glad you're here it's your word all you're here <laughs> we need each other the very sight of my name puts a smile on your face it's an oversimplification the things you say are so painful for me they feel like abuse it feels like you're doing it to me on purpose even though they're tweets to the world but when i think of the perfect response oh i had a good one recently Are you sifting through my Twitter profile? I am. You should share the story of uh, Norm who knit the toque. I just met him this week in Chester. I'm not talking about that. Maybe I'll get you to read it. Uh, On April 28th, you tweeted, Of all things to be afraid of, your own potential feels like a weird one. Oh yeah, you roasted me bad. It was good. I wouldn't worry about that if I were you. Yeah, that's a good burn. (laughs) You kicked a cotton L kitten in the face. Uh... Feels good, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It really does. It's been nice chatting with you, Jesse. It's nice having you in my life, Jonathan. Well, that's your Canada land. I'm Jonathan Torrance. Thank you for joining me as I stole the show from Jesse this week. Hopefully this hasn't been too traumatizing for him and he'll be back next week to take back his job. You can also email Jesse any thoughts you have about this episode or anything that Canadaland produces. I'm told he reads everything. He's at jesse at canadaland.com. You can also tweet. The show's handle is at canadaland. The website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced with the help of Jonathan Goldsby. Tristan Capacchione is the audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Music by So-Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Laura Robinson, sports journalist, author. Hello. 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 
Laura, on the show today, parents, why is it so expensive for your kid to play hockey? The answer may horrify you. Also, confidential sources and why they may not exist under Canadian law. Welcome to Shortcuts, Laura, where today we need to warn listeners that every topic on the show is going to deal with sexual assault. We do not get to pick the news, folks. Uh, We just talk about the coverage. Welcome to Shortcuts. It's a pleasure to be here. I have one that a listener sent in, just an astonishing story of how not to cover sexual assault uh, out of Newfoundland and Labrador. This is a CBC story that came out on July 27th. This is last week. Father says son with autism did not intend to harm woman in St. John's Park. Really, this is a story about a sexual assault told from the perspective of the alleged perpetrator's father. This is uh, reported by Ariana Kelland, CBC News. I'll read a bit from this. Calvin Flynn's heart dropped when he soon discovered his 22-year-old son, who has autism and requires the 24-hour care of his two parents, was in the back of a police car. I know my son loves to hug someone, and I know that if he went to the park without me there with him, if the opportunity arose, he was going to hug someone. And that's exactly what happened, Flynn said. He said that his son is not a monster who intended to inflict harm on anyone but a gentle man with a love of paintings, flags, eating fast food, and walking in Bowering Park with his dad, something he can no longer do because of a police order to stay away. Laura, this just goes on and on with a sympathetic portrait. Uh, I can understand 100% how the alleged victim felt, said the father, uh, because my son is a big boy. I want to tell you, my son did not intentionally want to hurt or sexually assault you, he said, addressing the woman. He doesn't have the mental capability to ever do something like that. He has no concept of it. And this article features a picture of his son's artwork. It's a poster the son made that says, bless those who see life through a different window and those who understand their view. The story goes on to blame the system that his 22-year-old son had to wait for four years for a psychiatrist, that they were failed by the system, which I'm sure has a lot of truth to it. But this story contained nothing from the alleged victim's point of view. It's just this, you know, very specific telling of what happened and how it was misinterpreted and how this was not a conscious sexual assault. I'm not sure exactly what happened behind the scenes in the newsroom. The CBC did follow up with an article later that day that that I think tried to balance things with some comment from the uh, alleged victim who, who spoke to the CBC. But it still ended up as an indictment of the system more than anything else. And you still had very, uh, like, very hazy idea of what exactly happened. Well, the alleged victim then took to Facebook and wrote a post in which she wrote that she felt completely victimized by the CBC's reporting. Sickening. This is not their story to tell. This happened to me. I don't know how you people sleep at night. They left out the majority of the details I described, and of course they're making it sound like the perpetrator is the victim. And then she goes on to provide her account of this alleged assault, and it is graphic, and I can fully understand why she felt a need to describe it in all of its graphic detail. I'm not gonna do that here. I will say that what she describes is getting out of a public swimming pool and lying in the grass to sunbathe and then being attacked by a large 22-year-old man who was violent with her, who was not hugging her, who 
by her description, what she describes is a sexual assault that went on and on for like 15 minutes, as she describes it, in which he explicitly yelled rape threats at her and chased her around when she's in her swimsuit, standing on her clothing so she couldn't get to it and, and, and being violent with her. It's much worse than that. She takes particular umbrage with the sympathy and the space given to the father's description where he tries to kind of erase like that it's called a hug, that my son likes to hug people. So I know how my son loves to hug someone. And I know that if he went to the park with me there with him, if the opportunity arose, he was going to hug somebody. And that's exactly what happened. She says that after she first posted about this on Facebook, another woman contacted her to say that she, too, had been attacked by an autistic man in that park in June. And that the father of this man pulled him away from her, pulled him off of her and says, you can't keep trying to hug girls. So she writes, the father is clearly downplaying these sexual assaults by calling them hugs. And he is sugarcoating the violence involved. There are many problems with all of this. Partly there is, I think, an injury done to people on the autism spectrum, this idea that that is cover for what it was clearly, as described, a sexual assault, a very serious crime. I don't know where to go with this beyond to say that, like, the process by which the CBC covered this and the difficulties in getting victims' points of view when their names are obscured should not create an opportunity to give such a completely unfettered platform for, I don't even want to say the other side, but for the the advocates of the other side. I mean, you know, the first article should not have been published. It's um, It's shocking. It's shocking. I agree with you that uh, it categorizes people on an autism spectrum as if they have no idea of, you know, right from wrong sort of thing. And and it silences completely the victim. It's just shocking, actually. It's wild that the victim has to be re-victimized by the press and then it has to like, OK, if you're going to sugarcoat this, here's what actually happened, you know, as a response to the media coverage. You know, there are ways in which we can hurt people if we do our jobs the wrong way. And I think that this needs to be studied and read and and, and people need to be held account for this beyond uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. Duly noted. Laura, while we are uh, still on this topic of, of the media and the way that we cover sexual assault, there is another story about sexual assault in hockey that has made the news out west. I don't know that many people are aware of this outside of there, and, and, and there's a specific particular legal point to this that I think is worth some unpacking. Last week, Vancouver Canucks player Jake Vertanen was found not guilty of sexual assault. That verdict came after the court ruled that a reporter with Glacier Media had to hand over to the court and to the alleged perpetrator and his counsel, emails, texts, and a video interview with Jake Vertanen's accuser. Okay, so this reporter had been talking to the accuser for a news story and dealing with that accuser as a confidential source. But then when this goes to trial, BC Supreme Court Judge Catherine Wedge concludes that it is more important for Vertanen's access to a fair trial to have these materials from the journalist's coverage uh, and that the impact on press freedom would be minimal. Laura, 
you and I have both been in positions where we have had to build trust with accusers and the primary concern that they have, and I don't know about you, but the promise that I've given is you are my confidential source and your name will not appear. You can speak to me without being afraid that your name is going to appear in anything that I publish. What we can't promise, it seems, is that we can keep their names or the contents of our communications with them confidential from a court order. Yes, I find the case very interesting. I read uh, Kirk LaPointe's editorial about it in uh, Business in Vancouver this morning, and someone contacted me last month about uh, something, and I sent her the article, and I said, let's just talk in person, because I want to be able to protect you, mm -hmm. and I don't want an electronic version of our conversation. The other thing that I find very interesting is that Justice Wedge is the same judge who ruled in the case I had against John Furlong. That's right. That's right. I thought I recognized the name. This is a story you broke some years ago about a man who is now known as uh, the head of the Vancouver Olympics and, and a highly respected figure and a, and, a, and a person who sits on various boards and is very important in sport, but who has a past in Indigenous schools where many of his former students stepped forward with very serious allegations and they confided in you, this BC Supreme Court judge, Catherine Wedge, presiding over a defamation case disallowed the testimony, the affidavits would not let the alleged victim's words to be heard uh, in a trial that very much had to do with the credibility of the allegations that they were making. Here was a case where the people who were allegedly victimized had no voice in the legal proceedings. And we see her again in this ruling that Glacier Media, in that article by Kirk LaPointe of Glacier Media, he lets us know that they are going to be appealing this to the Supreme Court of Canada. Laura, we do have protections in federal law for journalism. We have the 2017 Federal Journalistic Sources Protection Act, which was created specifically within criminal law to allow journalists to not disclose information or a document that identifies or is likely to identify sources unless the information or document cannot be obtained by any other reasonable means, et cetera, et cetera. There's a pretty big loophole in that. And what that loophole means is, I hate to say this because like, we always want to encourage people to speak to us, right? We don't want to give disincentives. Like it is hard work getting people to trust us and to hand over the name of one of my sources is sort of an unthinkable thing, but I don't want to castigate any journalist who by a court order is forced to do so. Cause like when you get down to that decision of like, do you want to go to jail or hand over these documents? I don't want to pass judgment on anybody who hands over the documents, but it does affect our practice. Like we can't really say to a source, don't worry, I will never share your name with anyone. Like the best we can really say is don't worry, I won't publish your name, but you should know that it is possible that a court could compel me to hand over all record of our communication and hand it over to the person that you're whistleblowing on or accusing. That is a, a hard atmosphere for journalists. It is a harder atmosphere than exists in the United States. It is a real blow to journalism. I'm very heartened, though, that Kirk LaPointe and Glacier Media will be taking this to the Supreme Court of Canada because I thought that the act was going to protect us and protect our sources. And maybe we also, unfortunately, need to have Supreme Court decisions so it's clear to judges who don't seem to be able to understand it.
Yeah, I understand that there are edge cases and outliers, but like if source protection laws don't protect the confidentiality of a accuser in a sexual assault story who is working with a journalist under an understanding of confidentiality, like that's like a bright line test case of like what confidentiality exists for. Like a lot of people are granted confidentiality in the day-to-day practice of journalism who probably should not be granted confidentiality in a lot of political reporting and other things. But like we have this practice and we have laws to protect this practice specifically for cases like this. Yes, it really is a difficult blow. I want to read the decision. I want to see exactly why Justice Wedge thought that this should occur. I know this from interviewing hundreds of sexual assault survivors over many decades, that what they tell you on one day will differ from what they'll tell you on another day in that they often are in such a state of trauma that they're reliving it in in various ways, right? Especially if there have been multiple times that they've been assaulted. I mean, it's just such a difficult place. So the fact that journalists' notes or recordings might appear to be inconsistent with something else, like, for instance, what that person told the police or something, that actually is normal because of the way in which that person's brain is trying to deal with the trauma that is revisited as they tell their story. Yeah. I mean, we know more about this, and I think that more people know more about this than before, about how memory works and how people build all kinds of things to cover up or to deal with or cope with trauma and to expect uh, that level of consistency where any minor point gets pulled apart as evidence of lack of credibility. Basically, if talking to a journalist might mean creating a record that gets handed over to the person who you think victimized you, that is a non-starter. That is an end to all the progress that's been made. That puts the kibosh on journalism about assault, sexual assault, and so many other things as well. So I'm going to be watching this appeal really closely because this is an important case. It's a very important case. Laura, that is a very heavy episode of Shortcuts this week. Thank you for joining me for it. You're very welcome. I just want to also remind people that if this has made them revisit memories that are very, very difficult for them, I hope that they find help with that. And I am, despite Justice Wedge's decision, I think there are a number of journalists who want to help them tell their stories, and we will do our very best to respect them. Well, you are one of those journalists, Laura, and I know that you do protect your sources, and you've let me know that if people want to reach you, uh, we can act as an intermediary. Please email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com for anything you might want to communicate to me or if you want to get in touch with Laura. I want to congratulate William and Ryan on their commitment ceremony this weekend. Mazel tov to the happy couple. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca.